This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. We got some snow in our area recently. Some of it's still not melted away. And I love the snow. I think it's great. And uh, my son had fun building a, a little mini snowman uh, that he took a lot of pride in. In fact, I'm going to post on my Instagram a photo of him. Um, you know, it, it's not of him, but it's a, a photo of this little mini snowman that he built. It's about, it's, it's only about six inches, but I'll, um, <laughs> he got, he had a lot of fun building it because we didn't get a lot of snow. So uh, I'll share that. It's uh, my Instagram is Morano Vision. But after the first day of the snow, he still kind of wanted to, I don't know, hold it, throw it, put it in his mouth, that kind of thing. And after the first day, I, I said, no, you know, come on, you really shouldn't do that. And lo and behold, he didn't. It was one of the rare instances where I said, you know, come on, that's dirty. You don't want to do that. But what we are witnessing right now is a whole new debate about whether it is safe and proper to eat snow. I'm not joking. Um, you know. Uh, Tony, did you hear about that uh, actress that was stabbed, uh, stabbed Reese? Uh, what's your name? Reese. Uh... I know who you're talking about, but I, don't, I know it's Reese. I, I can't remember her do, last do, name. Do you remember the, uh, do you remember who I'm talking about? Uh... He, he stepped out. All right. Well, um, the, see, that was, that was meant to be a joke. You're supposed to say Witherspoon and I'm, I would say no with a knife, but you guys you can't, I, wow. can't, I can't, I can't, I can't get a, I see <laughs> Matt Blaze. Where are you? Matt Blaze would have been with me on that. Well, anyway, Reese Witherspoon went on to uh TikTok, and she came out with a video for something called the Snocachino. And it's her recipe uh, featuring snow and uh, chocolate syrup, salted caramel sauce, and cold brew coffee. And she added this to the snow that she scooped over her covered grill. Here's a little bit of Reese Witherspoon on the Snocachino video. Okay, so we got a ton of snow over the past few days. We decided to make a recipe. So first we scooped the snow into cups, and we added salted caramel syrup and some chocolate syrup just because we like how they taste together. And we put it on top. And then we decided to add some cold brew just to have a yummy coffee flavor. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Okay, I know what to call it. A salted, snowy cappuccino. <laughs> a snow, salt, chococino. So... The snow salt chococino was born. All sorts of other people are trying to make this. They're mimicking her. And then this breaks out quite a debate all over the country. People are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You shouldn't be eating snow. Jason Smith, Dr. Jason Smith, uh, told Channel 11 WHAS in Louisiana exactly that. Be careful. The things you have to be worried about 
you can't eat snow anywhere near like a plowed road or anything like that where it could where it could pile up because of the chemicals associated with that. And in general, you don't want to be out there eating bowls and bowls of snow. The reason for it is, is it's like it's like rainwater. Can you drink rainwater? Yeah, you can. But there's always a risk for pollutants and there's always a risk for bacteria. And while it's very minor or small, um, it's not nothing. What a Debbie Downer. Now, look. I think it, there's nothing wrong with eating um, clean snow. It's one th- obviously once it's been hanging around for a day and it's got you know all sorts of dirt in there. But I mean, if we're talking s- uh, snow that just fell onto your front porch, you take out a top layer, throw it into a bowl, throw some cherry syrup on there, throw some chocolate syrup on there. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I think it's fine. But apparently enough people do that this has now engendered quite a nationwide debate. And Reese Witherspoon responded to people's being disgusted with her eating snow. Okay, so we're kind of in the category of like you only live once and it snows maybe once a year here. I don't know. Also, I want to say something. Okay. It was delicious. It was so good. I say good for Reese Witherspoon. I am so glad we didn't see one of these videos like we saw with Juliana Margolis or Susan Sarandon, where it looks like a hostage video of them apologizing for having fun and eating snow. No, she said, good. Who cares? You only live once. The snow, snow, salted snow cappuccino, whatever she called it, was delicious. Good for her. I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing at all. Uh, so I say good for you. you know, use your judgment, right? Don't eat snow from the street. Eat snow, top layer of some fresh snow. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, uh, coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Jack Kelly. Uh, he is an award-winning historian who is the author of the book God Save Benedict Arnold, the true story of America's most hated man. We're going to talk about that. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, you know the other trend that is just engendering all sorts of debate. Well, we'll save that for later. I don't want to bite off more than I can chew here, especially with people who are uh, eager to chat. 800-848-9222. Deborah is in New Jersey. Hi, Deborah. Yes. Hi, Frank. I have two questions uh, about the guys that were found outside. Did they have shoes and coats on? I have not seen any reporting that indicated they didn't have shoes and uh, and and coats on. So I have to think that that would have been in at least one of the articles. Right, that would tell you something. The second thing is where they laying down on their back or their face down. Well, okay, That's but by the way, important. let me just go back to um, you know the the one situation that um, one of at least one of the people did not have mm-hmm. his coat on. At least one of the people right. did not have uh, his coat on. And now there's all sorts of accusations now because one, the father of one of these guys, the father of this uh, Mr. Johnson who passed away, he's yeah. saying mm-hmm. he's saying of the guy that survived, he said publicly, I believe yeah. he drugged them, dragged them outside yeah. and waited exactly. two days to call police. Yes, so- to make it look like something happened outside. So I mean, but I don't know if he drugged them. They pr- might have been taking drugs, experimenting, whatever, and it was an accident. And then he thought he panicked. What am I going to do? I'm going to make it look like something happened outside. That's possible. That's it's why the- he waited two days. Yeah, it probably. I don't think he drugged them on purpose because that's stupid. Yeah, but I, something right. happened. They were doing drugs. A bad batch. 
he panicked and then thought, I better get him outside to look like something happened outside. You know, Deborah, that strikes me as an incredibly plausible and likely explanation. They're, maybe they're yeah. doing, I don't know, fentanyl or something, and yeah, a couple of them or, die, and he yeah. breaks, he brings yeah. them outside to he make panicked. it look like they froze to death. Yeah, yeah, and that's why he didn't call, but he, he also didn't want to be on, you know, call 911 because he couldn't fake it, so he waited for them to come to him. Like, oh, okay. Do you remember Ira, Ira uh, Einhorn? Remember out in Philadelphia? Yeah, absolutely. Remember he, he had Holly Maddox in the uh, right. trunk? Absolutely. And when they came, you know, they waited. When they came to him, he goes, oh, you found? Oh, okay. You found that in my apartment? Okay. Whatever. <laughs> he was very nonchalant about it. Um, so it seems very, you know. Similar. Yeah, it's it's a great point. Uh, look, I, I, that is so far, I think, the best theory that I've heard uh, so far. I do yes. wonder, though, I mean, this guy is an educated guy. I mean, he's a an HIV vaccine research scientist. He's right. not a he's and? not. I mean, I, I just have to think that maybe he'd have a little even inebriated or high. Maybe he'd have a little bit more sense than to have, send them outside without a coat to stage hypothermia. No, but no, no, they were already dead. No, no, I understand that. What, but why wouldn't yeah, he put they the were coat dead. on? Why wouldn't he put the coat on? Because they're dead. They're stiff. Okay. Well, look, it Deborah's- was two days, and if they're laying on their backs, so to say, anybody dragging a body, honestly, it's not going to drag them face down. Yeah. Well, probably more so. Because they're his friends, they're going to drag them otherwise. That's what I was wondering. You know, it could but be. you never know. He was in a panic. Yeah, could be, Deborah. Thank you. I think that's possible. But I also then wonder why the Kansas City Police Department would have come out so quickly and say no foul play is suspected. I mean, we'll see. I guess maybe we'll know more once the autopsy and the toxicology reports come out, right? We'll see. 800-848-9222. Norman, is it okay to eat snow? Hey, Frank. Um... Look, if, if you live in, like, the Cush Valley, I don't know, somewhere. Uh, Norman, sorry, we're losing you there, Norman. Try again. What? Uh, we didn't hear what you said. Uh, okay, if the, okay, if you're living in a place like Tibet or something like that at a high altitude where the water is very clean, yeah, I think you can eat the snow. In an emergency situation, I was a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout, and according to my field book, which I consulted, uh, it's totally fine to melt, uh, to melt snow and ice for water. Um, although it does say seawater, sea ice would, of course, be salty. And, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's a good idea if you live in Staten Island or in Brooklyn, in my case, to, uh, on a regular basis, eat snow. Well, what, how would come? Not be a good how come? Thing. What if it's you know a guy just wrote well, because me it, because because it feeds through the atmosphere. Yeah, we have all these pollute we have all these pollutants in the air. I mean, you know, we're driving cars, we're uh, you know smokestacks, and yeah, I, I guess, mean, yeah, and, that's what that doctor from Louisiana is saying is saying too. All right, look, um, I, I guess maybe there's something to what you're saying, Norman. I, I think if it looks clean. If it's right up, look, you know, this guy just wrote me, I eat snow off my backyard table, not under a tree, nothing falls on it, and it's clean and yummy. Now, could there be bacteria in there, as both Norman and this Dr. Jason Smith are saying? Maybe. But I have to think, how many people have you ever heard dying from eating bacteria-laden snow? I have to think it's pretty rare. 
800-848-9222. Rob is in Baltimore. Rob, what's on your mind? Oh, my God, Frank. You've got so many great topics today. Be my guests. Comment as you see fit. Yes. I mean, I've already had a pot of coffee, so I'm ready. Um, this, the, first of all, and the famous words of my fellow Baltimorean, uh, Frank Zappa, watch out where the Huskies go. Don't eat that yellow smell <laughs> from a long time ago. Anyway, back to uh, cable network. That's what I'm going to cable network is like, honestly, it is like watching highfalutin public access channels. All three, all three uh, networks. I, they they are so dull. I mean, how many times can you see Bill Barr and Chris Christie to the point where <laughs> you're ready to bring out the plate spinners and the hand puppets? Nowhere went this. Fair That's point. How bad it has gotten. It's gotten so bad. And far as um, this presidential election coming up, oh my God, it's the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, I mean, what are they going to have? What kind of commercials are they going to have? Denture cream and uh, demand? Well, that's what I mean. I don't know if you how much cable news you watch, but we have it on, um, on in the studio it, now. Retired. I don't watch. Yeah, I don't watch it either. But it's on. You know, I see it with the sound off in, when I'm here at work, and those are the commercials that you see. Uh, it's from so awful. They're just so dull. They're all. I don't care if they're Democrat, Republican, right, neither Martians, do I. yeah, neither do or I. whatever they are. They're just so dull, and they have the most. Dull, uninteresting people. And I said to I said to your uh, call uh, screener earlier, I said the future to me, and it will always be a talk radio mm-hmm. because it's live. I'm talking to you right now. We're connecting. It's it's fantastic. We're not. You can't. Where are you going to find this? I, I'm with you, Rob. No doubt about it. As far as I'm concerned, it's uh, by yes. far the best medium for entertainment and information. Thank you, Rob. Hey, uh, we're going to talk Benedict Arnold in just a minute. Those of you that are holding, we'll try and get to you. Well, let me squeeze in one more here on the uh, subject of snow eating. Al in New York, what do you think? Hey, Mr. Frank, how you doing? Great show as Thank usual. You. Thank you. Uh, I saw an old Colombo uh, episode many years ago. Snow intoxication. These guys were probably a little bit loopy, opened up their mouths and said, oh, let me have some cherry-flavored snow or whatever, blah, blah. you got to realize this, Frank, and I'm sure you know this. You know why it smells so great after uh, it rains, when everything is beautiful and fresh? No. Because it washes whatever's hanging in that air. All that, you know, everything from uh, crematoriums to landfills to everything that's in the air, it's horrible. So uh, then the other thing is, now watch when, when the rain dries. You ever look on a, a light-colored car, look, what do you see? All these, like, rust things. Well, that's actually rust. has nitrogen in it, hydrogen, all these bad things. So the key with uh, snow is if you're going to have it, have it upstate somewhere where, hmm. you know. So you're saying the same thing Norman is, that in, in urban areas, no matter how clean it seems to be, it's not safe to eat snow. Yes, one hundred percent. All right. right. Well, I, uh, I I hear you. Yeah, what did that guy say in Seinfeld? Don't take the don't take the snow. I mean the bomb, something like that. <laughs> Who told you to eat the snow? All right, cool. Listen, great show. Thanks, Thanks Al. Appreciate it. All right, we're gonna talk Benedict Arnold straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
night Ooh, what a night it was, it really was Such a night The moon was bright Oh, how bright it was, it really was Such a night this the other side of midnight, I'm Frank Morano. Well, if you talk about the most famous traitors in world history, whether you're talking Brutus, whether you're talking Judas, on this continent, I think you could combine the transgressions of Judas, Brutus, Iago, whoever else you want to mention, or roll those all into one, and they become synonymous with the legacy, at least in America, of Benedict Arnold. And as we approach the 250th anniversary of American independence, I thought it might be interesting to look back at the life and legacy of Benedict Arnold, whether or not his unsavory reputation is something that's deserved. And it just so happens there is a terrific new book out about this. Happens to be written by an award winning author and historian. The book is called God Save Benedict Arnold, the true story of America's most hated man. Very pleased to be joined by its author, Jack Kelly. Jack, thanks for joining me on the radio. Congratulations on the book. Well, thank you, Frank. Uh, It's good to be with you. You know, Jack, there's been so many interesting books, creative books, books that are food for thought about uh, commonly understood aspects of American history, books that I'll call revisionist history. And I mean that in the best sense. There have been people that have written books about how, um, you know, maybe Joseph McCarthy wasn't actually accusing people of being communists that weren't. There have been books that uh, have explained uh, various theories about Pearl Harbor that challenge the conventional wisdom. And I guess if you were going to write a revisionist history book about Benedict Benedict Arnold, it would be that he wasn't really a traitor. That's not really what your book, though, does, is it? It's not that type of revisionist history. No, not at all, Frank. Uh, I'm not uh, out to exonerate him, but uh, I think that he's probably the the best-known soldier from the Revolutionary War after George Washington. Um, and the reason is, and the one thing that everybody knows about him is the treason. And I just wanted to get across the idea that there's a lot more to him than the fact that he committed treason, though he certainly did. And that it's important to understand Benedict Arnold in order to get a, a good understanding, a clear picture of the Revolutionary War itself. You spend a great deal of time in this book and write about it in pretty vivid, colorful detail, uh, describing his heroics and the examples of him as a warrior prior to what led him to the infamy, which still follows him to this day. Give folks an example of the kind of warrior tactics, the kind of heroics that he was known for prior to becoming a traitor? Well, you, you, can, you can sort of look at the first three years of the Revolutionary War through the lens of Benedict Arnold, and you see in 1775, he captured Fort Ticonderoga only three weeks after the war broke out at Lexington and Concord. Uh, it was the most strategic fort in America. And he not only captured that, he then on his own initiative went up to Canada and captured a British warship, gained control of the entire Lake Champlain. That was the route from Canada into the 13 colonies. And for the first two years of the war, the 
patriot control of Ticonderoga thwarted the British from invading into the colonies. So that was a, a major achievement. The following year, they tried to invade, and he fought them off at the Battle of Valcour Island, a, a naval battle that was actually on Lake Champlain. Uh, tremendous um, uh, imagination to, to actually confront the Royal Navy uh, on the lake and uh, at least fight them to a draw uh, if, and, and stop the invasion. And then a year later, he was the person at Saratoga who led the charge, uh, led the, the two battles, uh, defeated John Burgoyne, and that is known as the turning point of the Revolutionary War. So one year after another, in each of those years, he was really uh, the principal figure in the, the main event. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I would think being held in that high regard by the Continental Army and by the public, he would be the last person that anyone would think would be a traitor, which I suppose why it was such big news. Why did he do it? Well, that's the uh, the big question. And the, I, what I would say is that there's almost too many reasons. Um, over the years, historians have asserted that he did it only for the money. And he did get paid by the British to, to hand over the fort at West Point, which then was a major fort on the Hudson River. Some said his wife influenced him. He'd married a young um, loyalist-leaning uh, young lady from Philadelphia, Peggy Shippen, and uh, she influenced him to, to uh, come over to the British. Some said he didn't like the French uh, alliance. Some said that he was just disgruntled over the promotions and the handling he had gotten from Congress. And all those may have had some role in it, but the, none of them is big enough to make that 180-degree turn mm. and, and and become the the opposite of what he had been before. I think we have to think about things now, these days, like PTSD. And he had been severely wounded in battle twice. He was wounded twice. One, the second time at Saratoga was very severe. He was in in constant pain probably for all of his, the rest of his life. Um, also things like he was a narcissist, and I think he really liked to be at the center of everything. And when he was he was wounded and he was laid up for many, many months, uh, he started thinking, how can I get back to this being at the center of things? I don't think those are reasons, but they are factors that we would have to consider. And I think that the reason my answer to that question would be, I really don't know. He was a very enigmatic character. He was not uh, introspective himself about why he did things. And I sometimes wonder if he even knew himself why wow. uh, he really did it. Uh, you alluded, to, and by the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, award-winning historian and author Jack Kelly. You can check out his uh, new book, God Save Benedict Arnold, The True Story of America's Most Hated Man. It's available wherever books are sold. Jack, you alluded to his wife, uh, Peggy, and you described her as having loyalist sympathies. She was a spy as well, right? She was uh, definitely in on the plot. She had the, the British uh, took over Philadelphia, and she lived in Philadelphia. And while they were in control of Philadelphia, she uh, flirted with the officers and got to know uh, some of the British officers, including Major John Andre, who became the head of British intelligence. So when after she married Benedict Arnold, she was a, the go-between between him and 
uh, and uh, Major Andre, and uh, certainly knew about the plot, uh, probably encouraged him. But I just don't think, particularly when you think back in those days, the relationships between men and women, that uh, Benedict Arnold was hardly the type that, that a woman would say, well, maybe you should do this, and he went and did it. I, I think that he had his own reasons, and he used her as uh, as just a, a figure to help him uh, uh, get in touch with the British. Now, uh, maybe I uh, jumped the gun a little bit by assuming a lot of the audience already understands what form his treason took, and I'm betting a lot of people don't. A lot of people probably know Benedict Arnold was a traitor that betrayed the revolutionary cause and the Continental Army, but what exactly did he do at West Point? What form did his treason take? Yeah, well, I always uh, emphasize that I think that his treason was actually uh, much more serious and, and severe than than most people think, even if they know about um, West Point. West Point then was not a military academy. It was a, uh, a major fort protecting the Hudson River. And it was something the British had been trying to get control of the Hudson River throughout the war. And he offered to allow them. He, he was in command of that area. Uh, and he offered to allow them to take over West Point, and made they made the arrangements. He gave them maps, and uh, he he, he um, allowed the fortifications to to deteriorate at West Point, and so they were ready to take it over. And uh, that plot was foiled at literally the last minute. Um, and he escaped at, uh, w- once he realized that the, the, the um, Patriots had found out what he was doing, he escaped down to New York. But then what a lot of people don't know is he went down to Virginia and led British troops as a British uh, general against Americans and then went up to uh, New London, Connecticut, where he was from, and and burnt that town down wow. for the British. Wow! So before he went over to England well, uh, after the war, and, and that's exactly what I was going to ask you. A- after he was exposed as a traitor, and after the Patriots won the uh, Revolutionary War, what was the rest of Benedict Arnold's life for him? What, what where did he live? What did he do? Well, it was sort of a mixed bag. He he and his wife and 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 his uh, children went over to um, England. They got a they got a mixed reception over there. Some people admired him. A lot of people did not admire him because everybody hates a traitor, and particularly the British officers in the army. And he wanted to stay in the army. He loved being in the army, and he wanted to be in the. Uh, they didn't want him because they not only was he a traitor, he had killed a lot of British soldiers while he was a while he was on the Patriot side. So he got back into business. He lived in Canada for a while and basically got back into his, his old business, which was trading down to the West Indies. And um, he, did, he lived a comfortable life, but not he never seemed to be a happy person because he was really only happy. I think once he got the bug for uh, the military life, he really was only happy uh, when he was in action and he was never able to get back into action. Our guest is Jack Kelly. He's the author of God Save Benedict Arnold. Really interesting book, uh, relatively short, and you can read it in a relatively short amount of time, but it's packed with information and packed with uh, a lot of beautiful storytelling which we'll talk about in a second.
second. Uh, Jack, these days in, in Great Britain, what is Benedict Arnold's legacy? You mentioned kind of the mixed bag among the British at the time that he lived. How do the British view Benedict Arnold these days? Well, I think that uh, other than the fact that he's a sort of sort of a historical curiosity, there are some fans of him over there. Uh, the um, church that he was buried in, uh, somebody in Britain, I can't remember who it was exactly, was a fan of Benedict Arnold and put, in, put up a uh, stained glass window honoring him. It's one of the few monuments there are to Benedict Arnold anywhere in the world. And um, I think that uh, as here, you know, he's just remembered as a traitor mm. and, uh, and, and sort of a, a curious figure. You mentioned one of the few monuments to Benedict Arnold. If you go to Saratoga National Park, I, I learned that there's actually something of a memorial uh, depicting the barrel of a howitzer over which is draped a riding boot topped by the two-starred uh, epaulet of a major general and a victor's laurel wreath. And the inscription on the reverse commemorates, quote, the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army me without mentioning that person's name. That's a memorial to Benedict Arnold, right? Right. That's what they call the boot memorial. It's uh, it's a curiosity, I'll say that. Uh, and uh, they say it's quite popular with kids. They go up and it's like, there's, there's a monument to a boot. <laughs> and uh, somebody got the idea for that back around the turn of the nine, you know, 1900 uh, to put up this memorial just to remember him. Um, because his reputation became so toxic after he went over the British uh, during the war and in the early 19th century. It, he was just hated in this country so badly that um, every speck of uh, reference to him uh, was erased and every monument was erased and there are no statues or anything uh, along those lines. So that's one of the, that is one of the few. And as you as you mentioned, it doesn't even mention his name. Wow. Uh, in this book, what will people learn for the first time if they know the story or if they think they know the story? What's new in this book? God save Benedict Arnold. Well, I think the I think the the most surprising thing to me as I was writing the book was the uh, his military ability, and many people ask me like, why was how did he become such a great military genius, tactically, strategically, uh, just brilliant, and had absolutely no military training, hmm. and I always say. You know, there's really two angles to that. One is that he had been a ship's captain before the war. He actually, was, his father had a, had ships that traded down to the West Indies. He went with his father. Then he took over a similar business later on, had no, numerous ships that he would, he would be the captain of sailing down there. To be a, a sea captain in those days, you had to be a pretty tough character, uh, ready to assert yourself, uh, to dominate people. You also had to be attention to the detail you had to plan all these were skills that that went over to becoming a military officer and the other thing is that i think that once he got started he himself was probably surprised at the gift that he had for leadership and for military thinking and he often would say in the early days i want to you know send send a a higher rank general 
to give me guidance here, even though he was operating himself in some of the operations uh, perfectly well without without any help. And I think it was just something that he was a natural lawyer. He had these gift, this gift for um, thinking in action, which, you know, instead of panicking, when the action got really heavy, he would think and he would um, almost always do the right thing. In 21st century America today, what do you think is the most misunderstood aspect of Benedict Arnold's life? Is it the underestimation of his military abilities? Is it the possibility of PTSD? Is it the heroism at places like Saratoga? Or is it something else? Well, one thing I would point to is that he never thought of himself as a traitor. You know, we always think, oh, he was a traitor. He must have considered himself a traitor. He didn't think he was a traitor. He thought he was doing the right thing when he rebelled against the king. And, of course, we have to remember everybody that fought in the Revolutionary War was a traitor sure. in, a, in a sense of rebelling against the king. But then he thought the war had accomplished its purpose and that it would be better to end the war. And he thought the best way to end the war was for him to go over to the British and encourage others to do so, which hmm. uh, he did encourage people and nobody followed him. And it turned out that he had chosen the, the losing side in the war. I mentioned the manner in which you write the stories here. When you get into the descriptions of the battles, when you get into the descriptions of troops uh, arriving at certain places, even getting into the relationships between some of the historical figures that you uh, that you get into here. Uh, did your previous experience writing novels, and I've no, I know you've written several, did that help you just in terms of how you told the story in this book? Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. You know, I started out as a novelist. I, I wrote a number of crime novels, actually. And I was always interested in sort of human experience taken to the, to the edge and what it was like to, to, try to try to imagine what it was like to be in that person's mind. And so I try to bring that to the writing about the battles and about the relationships uh, during the war. And um, to get across the idea, I think I would say, Frank, that this was not a costume drama. This, this was really serious stuff. And if you were in the middle of it, it was, you know, these guys suffered great hardships. Uh, the violence was, as, you know, as, as violent as you would want. Uh, cannonballs, a grape shot, and the chaos of battle, the noise of battle. And I try to get all that across uh, when I write about it uh, so people don't think of it as, as, as just sort of a, an exercise in, um, in toy soldiers, you know what I mean? No, no doubt about it. I, I think that definitely uh, comes across. Uh, talking with Jack Kelly, the author of God Save Benedict Arnold. Jack, you, you mentioned that uh, Benedict Arnold is probably the best-known revolutionary soldier except for George Washington. What was Benedict Arnold's relationship like with George Washington on both a personal and a professional level? Well, uh, they were—George Washington loved Benedict Arnold, you know, in part because he was so effective. It was sort of—they uh, had a relationship, I would say, was somewhat like uh, Eisenhower and Patton, mm -hmm. whereas uh, Washington w w had a look at the huge picture and was an administrator of, a, of an army, and Arnold was the guy who he could depend on to fight. Um, they did not have 
much contact. Uh, the the, the um, Arnold was always off on various operations, uh, not right directly under Washington. In fact, when, when uh, Benedict Arnold was fighting up on Lake Champlain, George Washington was getting beaten in New York City and then pushed across New Jersey out into um, Pennsylvania in the, in the disaster of uh, 1776. So they were fighting at the same time, but in separate theaters. Uh, but Washington loved him and, and supported him and tried to tried to uh, be diplomatic about uh, Arnold's various foibles. Arnold was a very prickly guy. And um, when the when the treason came, he uh, uh, George Washington was just heartbroken. It was uh, I, I can imagine. If Benedict Arnold had died at Saratoga, how do you think we would be viewing him today? Well, I, uh, a lot of historians over the years have said if he died at Saratoga, he would have been remembered as the one of the greatest military geniuses of American history. And I think there's a lot of there, there's a there's a logic to that thinking, but unfortunately, I think if he'd been killed at Saratoga, he would be in many ways forgotten you do as the many uh, as all the other um great heroes of the revolution have been forgotten you know the fact that we don't remember the fighting man we remember jefferson and madison and of course george washington who straddled both the political and the military world but you ask people you know i live in the hudson valley we have putnam county we have montgomery county we have green county but you, people don't don't really know who these counties were named after. Right. These were the greatest heroes of the revolution. So unfortunately, I think um, Benedict Arnold probably would have gone down that road. Uh, and, and in a way, it's sort of sad that that, that it has to be treason that makes us remember uh, some of these figures that are so important in our history. When the Wall Street Journal was reviewing uh, your book, they said one of the things that your book makes somewhat clear is that without Arnold's conspicuous courage and resourcefulness from 1775 to 1777, the journal asked the question, would the United States even exist today? What's your answer to that? Without what Benedict Arnold did in those formative years of the revolution, would we have a country today? Well, I, I think it was so um, so much of a close call and so much touch and go at so many different points in those early years, particularly in 1776. You know, George Washington himself said uh, he wrote a letter to his brother in December of 1776 before he crossed the Delaware, and he said, "I think the game is pretty near up." And and it was Benedict Arnold's holding off the British in the north that allowed him to sort of gather himself back together, cross the Delaware, defeat the uh, Hessians at Trenton, and really get, revive the cause. But there were enough times when the, the, the American cause was balanced on a, on a knife's blade that um, the contribution of Benedict Arnold was very important. I wouldn't say, it's hard to say a what if, you know, if Benedict Arnold hadn't existed, but um, his accomplishments certainly um, uh, contributed to the uh, survival, and, and that was the important thing for the cause to survive. 
Given that, given the, those important early contributions to American independence, do you think Americans today should reevaluate his legacy a bit as whoever put up that memorial at Saratoga National Park did around 1900? Yeah, I think that I think that uh, there's been a number of good biographies written. My, my book is not really a biography; it's sort of a military uh, uh, telling of the military story. But uh, there, there, Benedict Arnold is a very uh, interesting person to learn about, and a great uh, entry into the Revolutionary War itself because he was so much, so involved in so many of the major operations of those first three crucial years. Um, I, I think people should take another look at them, and um, they might be surprised. Tell me about the title, God Save Benedict Arnold. What, what is that taken from? I have a, a short kind of historical what if. Uh, Arnold, in the late, his later years, wanted to get into a naval command. He, he, he loved the sea, and he, as I mentioned, he'd been a sea captain, and he asked several times to get a naval command. He never was able to do so. And I sort of imagine what if he had gotten that and he would have been, you know, not committed treason and would have been out successfully sailing on the sea and coming back and people would have shouted, God save Benedict Arnold. But the other reason is that I feel people should reserve the moral judgment. The moral judge, you know, if we jump to judgment of him as a traitor, uh, we don't get a clear picture of him. And I just think leave the judgment of his treason to a higher power and look at him as a total character, uh, paradoxical, um, uh, complicated, uh, but very, very interesting character. On that note, uh, Jack Kelly, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time, especially so late at night. Best of luck with the book. Uh, great to talk to you, Frank, and um, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you very much. If people want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. I may not always love you. But long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. If you should ever leave me, the Beach Boys in another selection from our listener of the week, Isaac. This uh, this song I remember because for I think all but one season, this was the theme song or the song that played at the opening of the HBO original series Big Love with Bill Paxton, which I enjoyed very much. That show I thought it was a great show. Really, it's really well done. Um, you know, there's one listener, Jonathan, 
who forwards me interesting facts from time to time, interesting words. I get the sense, like me, he subscribes to a lot of different email lists, word of the day email lists. And sometimes he does send me words that, you know, that I'm unaware of, oftentimes that I'm unaware of. And he sends me these interesting historical facts. And I came across one that was just so interesting that I decided to subscribe to this myself. It's called History Facts. I have to tell you, and just my conversation just now with Jack Kelly reminded me of this because we were talking about George Washington. I never thought of this. I never knew this. But George Washington did not know that dinosaurs existed. Isn't that wild? We think of George Washington in so many senses as the father of modernity And we think of dinosaurs as just incredibly old. So one, it seems to, at least in my brain, I always picture them knowing about dinosaurs. But most likely the answer is no. So today, the existence of dinosaurs may seem like an immutable fact, but our knowledge of these ancient creatures is a relatively modern development. In fact, the very concept of dinosaurs is so recent that many of our nation's founders, Benedict Arnold, George Washington, live most, if not all, of their lives without ever knowing they existed. There was an English naturalist that described the very first fossilized evidence of dinosaurs, what we now know to be the femur of a megalosaurus, in 1677. But with no concept of dinosaurs in the mid-17th centuries, this fella, Robert Plott, theorized that the bone must have belonged to some ancient forgotten race of giant humans, which went hand in hand with what was in the Bible. And it's likely that George Washington died in 1799, believing that such giant humans existed in the distant past. It wasn't until the 1820s that geologists began to reexamine this and propose that the mysterious bones belonged to an ancient reptile rather than a mammal. Then, even then, it took until 1842 for an English paleontologist to offer up the word dinosaur, which is Greek for terrible lizard. Isn't that crazy? I, it kind of blew my mind. I don't know. I don't know if anyone else is interested. You know, uh, reading this uh, Jack Kelly book, which really is quite good, I did the same thing that I did when I started this Chris Jericho book yesterday, which is I start the book, I look at the title page, okay, contents, then there's a list of maps, there's an author's note, there's a quote, and there's acknowledgments. And in both the case of this Jack Kelly book and uh, the case of this uh, Chris Jericho book that I'm reading, I'm looking at the acknowledgments page waiting to see my name. Now, I've never spoken with Jack Kelly before just now. I've never met Chris Jericho. Neither one of them would have any reason to list me on the acknowledgments page. But sure enough, in both cases, without thinking, I wasn't thinking, but I'm looking through the acknowledgments page and I'm waiting to see, oh, is he going to mention me? Now, of course he's not going to mention me. But I realized just today or yesterday that I do this with every book that I read. I read the acknowledgments page looking for my own name, which has got to be one of the sickest, most narcissistic things 
that anybody does. I don't know if anybody else does this. Because once in a while you do read a book that usually it's by someone you know has written it. And your name pops up in there. That's happened with uh, without them telling you. It's happened with James O'Keefe's book. It happened with John Katzmatidi's book. happened with Roger Stone's book. A couple of other books that I mentioned in. But these are all people that I know. Why would I be on the acknowledgments page of one of these books of somebody that I don't know? So, you know, I think that's nice. Just in, in case any of you out there write a book, throw me on the acknowledgments page. And don't tell me. This way, it'll be a nice discovery for me if I ever get to read your book. And, you know, I'll say, oh, acknowledgement for Frank Morano, who is the one person that always reads the acknowledgement page looking for his own name. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Jersey City. Hi, Steve. Frank. Uh, good, e- good morning. Good evening. Good morning. Whatever. Yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, yeah, as far as dinosaurs go, I can't. I highly recommend everyone watch many episodes of The Flintstones. Yeah, uh, it's uh, one so of the that. more historically accurate children's shows exactly. ever. Exactly. Well, getting back to Arnold, you know, Benedict Arnold, I'm very wealthy. And uh, they had to sneak the family out of uh, America back to England because if they didn't, they would have been murdered. Um and uh, George Washington, he was a fascinating character. Even though he was the father of our country, he was a very, very, very jealous, envious man of a lot of generals and of a lot of other people. Uh, all these, uh, our forefathers were brilliant. They were brilliant. But, you know, they had to put on knickers one, one leg right, at a time. of course. Just like, oh. humans, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly, but I like, but like I said, you know, I enjoy your show. You have a we have a really good show, and uh, I suffer from uh, insomnia, and uh, this actually this doesn't put me to sleep. It actually does keep me awake, which is a which is a good and a bad thing. You know, I don't know how to take it. It's bittersweet, but thanks, Frank. Hey, I'll take it, Steve. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. When whenever any group gets lionized, whether it's the founding fathers or anybody else, the greatest generation or people in the Bible, right? It's important to keep in mind what Steve just said. These were all people just as human as we were, except in the Bible. There's some exceptions to that. And they had all the same human foibles that we all do, right? All right. uh, We'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Until next hour, help control the pet population and get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. 